0: Welcome to The Defense Rest, the podcast where we break down infamous criminal trials through the lens of an actual practicing criminal defense attorney. In this podcast, we break down not only the intricacies of the legal system, but we also dive into the strategies that are used by district attorneys as well as tactics by defense attorneys and the very critical decisions that judges make that completely shape the outcome of a trial. Before we get into the trial that we are going to be discussing today, I do want to let all of my visual watchers that are watching on YouTube right now to know that a lot of the makeup that I will be using in this video is going to be makeup for my own small business, Royalty Cosmetics, where a portion of all proceeds is donated towards free legal defense for women that are sex trafficking victims, as well as children that are in the inner cities that are being targeted by a racist justice system. You can shop at www.myroyaltycosmetics.com. And without further ado, today under the legal lens, we present to you the Commonwealth versus Lizzie Borden. to do the trial of Lizzie Borden for a long time now. And the reason why is because there's always been this mystery behind these murders. And everyone has always said that it was a ghost tale, right? People literally will go stay at the Borden household in Massachusetts and bring like ghost hunting materials to try to figure out who killed the Bordens. And so, unfortunately, if you want to believe that it's a ghost tale, you may not want to listen to this episode of our podcast, because we will be breaking down the trial of Lizzie Borden. Now, as we all know, the very infamous nursery rhyme is Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax, And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. I do want to get a disclaimer out there before we start. This trial with Lizzie Borden happened in 1892. 1892. It happened well over 130 years ago. So, With this trial, it's going to be significantly different than the trials that I have broken down before, which are much more recent trials. They're trials that happened in the 90s and early 2000s. So, am I going to be proficient in the law in the 1800s? Absolutely not, okay? I don't know how much we're going to learn in this case study together, but we are going to learn that there is no ghost that is involved in these murders. So we're going to take you back to August 4th of 1982 in Fall River, Massachusetts. And at this time in the Borden household, they had a live-in maid by the name of Maggie Sullivan. And she claimed that during the day of the murders, she was cleaning the windows all day long and around 11 in the morning she decided to go to her bed and take a nap and as she was going to her bed she heard lizzie borden scream And I quote, Maggie come down, come down quick, father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. So on the sofa downstairs in the Borden household was Andrew Borden, Lizzie's father. And he was completely unrecognizable. His face was almost completely axed off. Maggie Sullivan said that he was beyond recognition. That is how badly somebody took an ax to his skull. So after this, the police were called, and when the police came over to investigate the Borden murders, Lizzie had a bunch of guests coming in and out of the home during the police investigation. And as we know in modern times, this would never be allowed because this is just going to completely contaminate the scene. It's going to affect the DNA. It's going to affect evidence of things that could have been lying around when the murder had occurred because maybe somebody picked it up on their shoe. Maybe people were taking things from the Borden household. We just don't know, but there were a bunch of people that were coming in and out of the home during this investigation. And one of the guests that was invited into the home during the investigation, her name was Adeline Churchill, and she was up on the second floor of the Borden household. And she went into Lizzie's parents' bedroom, which was located on the second floor. And she was the one that actually found Abby Borden's dead body. And Abby Borden is Lizzie's Borden's stepmother. And she found the body of Abby Borden just laying on the floor of the bedroom. So obviously Adeline started screaming. The police ran upstairs and they began to examine Abby Borden's body and what they had noticed was that Abby Borden's body was found cold while Andrew Borden's body was found warm and this led the police to believe that Abby Borden had been killed at least 90 minutes prior to Andrew Borden. And while the police continued to investigate Andrew Borden's body because they decided to continue investigating his body before they investigated abby borden's body and they said and i quote that over the temple a wound six by four had been made as if it had been pounded in with a dull edge of an axe the left eye had been dug out and a cut extended the length of the nose the face was hacked to pieces and the blood had covered the man's shirt Despite all of this gore, the room was in order and there was no signs of a scuffle of any kind. So also at the crime scene, a doctor by the name of Dr. William Dolan had arrived also. He was a medical examiner and he actually was performing the autopsies at the crime scene. Now obviously we would not do this in today's day and age either because again it's going to contaminate the evidence. And it's going to affect DNA. It's not proper. It's not sterile. There's so many issues with evidence here. But again, this was over 130 years ago. And they had no idea what contamination was. They had no idea what DNA was. They were just out here winging it with God. To be honest, I have no idea how they were able to actually capture murderers back in this time. But they did their best. All right, so the police, paired with the medical examiner, had come up with a timeline for the murder. They believed that Abby Borden was cleaning the bedroom of Andrew Borden of where they slept together, and that at 9.30 in the morning, the killer came in and struck her, killing her first. Abby Borden was struck with an axe 19 times in the neck and in the back of the head. The police then concluded through their investigation that they believe that andrew borden came home around 10 40 in the morning and that instead of going upstairs he stayed down on the first floor to take a nap on the couch and that's when the killer had come downstairs and murdered andrew he was killed by receiving 11 axe blows to the front of his face so again the police believes that Abby was killed an hour and a half before Andrew was. So their working theory is that at 9, 9.30, The police then concluded through their investigation that they believed that Andrew Borden came home around 1040 in the morning and that instead of going upstairs, he stayed down on the first floor to take a nap on the couch. And that's when the killer had come downstairs and murdered Andrew. He was killed by receiving 11 axe blows to the front of his face. So again, the police believes that Abby was killed an hour and a half before Andrew was. So their working theory is that at 9, 9.30, Abby Borden was murdered by an ax in her bedroom and that the murderer just kind of waited in the house and waited upstairs for an hour and a half. And then when Andrew Borden came home, they then went downstairs and murdered him. Abby Borden was murdered by an ax in her bedroom and that the murderer just kind of waited in the house and waited upstairs for an hour and a half. And then when Andrew Borden came home, they then went downstairs and murdered him. So now that the police have their working theory together, their working timeline together, they now begin searching the Borden household for clues, but they don't completely search the house. And when I say they don't completely search the house, I mean, they don't look through any of Lizzie's belongings, her sisters or any other females in the home because at the time during this like Victorian era and the late 1800s, that was like a big social no. Like even for police investigations, you couldn't go through a woman's belongings and you couldn't go through her room. But where they did begin searching was the basement. So in the basement behind the chimney, the police found this box and inside of the box, there were three hatchets that were kind of like axes. And one of the hatches was broken and completely covered in ash. So the police believed that this was the murder weapon and they believed that this was quite recently used. And then they had washed the hatchet off or washed the ax off and then put it inside of the ash to dry. But other than that, nothing super significant evidence wise or murder weapon wise showed up. What was further indicated that was extremely strange during this investigation was how clean everything was. So as you know, Andrew Borden was axed in the face 11 times to the point of being completely unrecognizable. but where he was laying where he was murdered down on the couch there was not a drop of blood there was no blood splatter on the walls there was no blood splatter on the roof there was no drops of blood on the floor it was completely clean minus the fact that there was a dead body laying there historians who have examined this case believe that the reason why nothing significant showed up there was no murder weapon there was no evidence at all and there wasn't even blood on the walls is because they believed that people had come over after Lizzie had alerted them of these murders and helped clean up the place and help kind of like put pristine back into the house and help remove anything that was not supposed to be there. And the historians say that the reason why this happened was because that was really common during this time period. So at this point, the police begin to think that this is an inside job, that somebody from inside of the and household is responsible for the murders. And the reason why they believe that is because there was no signs of forced entry. There was no signs of a struggle, meaning that the person probably knew the murderer and wasn't alarmed or alerted by their presence within the home and obviously the murder had to have been a resident of the home or else they would have needed to break in they began ruling out family members one by one through alibis emma borden who is lizzie's sister she was ruled out by the police because she was actually out of town on vacation during these murders john morse was lizzie borden's uncle through her biological mother who is now deceased and he was staying at the family home as well but he wasn't actually there during the time of the murders he was visiting other relatives that were in town so the only people that were remaining was maggie sullivan the live-in maid and lizzie borden and the police did entertain the idea of maggie sullivan being the murderer for a little bit but they quickly ruled her out and the reason why they ruled her out was they said, she has no motive. Like if she kills her employer, she has nowhere to live because she was a live in maid. And she has no money because she now no longer has employers to employ her. So now this is when the police started suspecting Lizzie Borden as the murderer of her parents. A lot of people began swirling around these rumors that Lizzie Borden and Abby Borden did not get along. And the police actually believed this to be true. And the reason why they believed that this was true was because on the day that they were questioning Lizzie, like the day that she found her parents murdered, Lizzie interrupted the police and this is what she said. And I quote, that is not my mother. That was my stepmother. My mother died when I was a child. Now the police thought this was weird for several reasons. They thought it was weird once to be using the past tense term of was instead of is that Abby Borden had just been found deceased within minutes and she's already using the past tense phrase of was instead of is and they were saying that most people that are in shock over a loved one being dead wouldn't be able to mentally process it at this point and they would still be using present tense verbs they also said that they thought it was very strange for her to have made that difference of saying that abby borden was not her mom her mother is deceased and abby borden was actually her stepmother at a time where she had just found this woman axed to death but even with all these rumors and with how Lizzie Borden was talking to the police, the family insisted to the police that Abby and Lizzie actually had a cordial relationship and they got along just fine. The police did note in their police reports that they found it extremely odd that Lizzie had no recollection of Abby's whereabouts after nine a.m. that day. So, in the police report, they also noted that they believed it probably took the killer about fifteen minutes to actually subdue and kill Andrew Borden. And when they were questioning Lizzie about where her whereabouts were between ten forty and ten fifty-five, which is when they believed that Andrew was murdered, she said that she was out back in their barn, that was outside, and that she. Was grabbing fishing supplies for a trip that she was supposed to go on soon but the police noted that this was really weird because family members had said that lizzie actually hasn't gone on a fishing trip in over five years and when the police went outside to actually check out the barn area the barn floor was completely covered in dust and there were no footprints in the areas of the barn where she claimed to be. In fact, there was no footprints in the barn whatsoever. It was just like a sheet of dust on the floor. So a man by the name of Eli Benz, he was a clerk for a store called S.R. Smith's Drug Store. And back then they didn't call them pharmacists, they called them druggists, which obviously we don't refer to in today's day and age. The only people we refer to as druggists are most likely date rapists. But Eli Benz came forward and he told the police that the day before the Borden murders, Lizzie had actually come to his store requesting a very specific type of poison. She was attempting to buy something called... Pursic acid and this is a deadly poison and he said that he would not give it to her unless she had a prescription for it i do want to note that i have never heard of pure sick acid nor have i ever heard of it being legal to get a prescription for a deadly poison but again this was the 1800s and i guess that you could go to a doctor and ask for deadly poison to be prescribed to you also, counsel would like to admit defense exhibit A to prove how sexism, misogyny, in the patriarchy has been some of the founding blocks of the United States from its inception because the day after the murders, this is what the newsline said to alert the public of this gruesome murder of a man and a woman. Shocking crime a vulnerable citizen and his old aged wife hacked to pieces in their home. I think one of the saddest things about reading that news clip from 1892, 131 years ago, is that the viewpoint towards women way back in the 1800s and the way that we spoke about women back then is the same manner in which we speak about women in 2024. There may never be a headline saying a vulnerable citizen and his old aged wife hacked to pieces in their home. I don't know if any journalist would be that bold and brazen, but you can look at journalism now, especially journalism when it relates to celebrities. And all what you see is how glorified men are within aging and how volatile this country is against any woman that ages which is an in- inevitable thing to do. I think that out of this whole thing was quite shocking to my core on how little we have truly progressed at the core of this society in America. So now this brings us to the indictment. So back in 1892, they had something called an inquest. And what an inquest was, was basically a hearing In front of the judge for the judge to determine if the defendant should be arrested and if they are to be arrested what charges should be brought in front of them now we don't do this today a judge does not decide if somebody is arrested we obviously know that the police decide who is going to be arrested and they decide so basically on suspicion right and then after that after they're arrested which is what the police decide, then there is something called a charging district attorney and all what they are in charge of doing is reading police reports and deciding whether or not they are actually going to bring forward charges against a defendant. And then from there, after that, what can either happen is a grand jury can come together or you can have something called a preliminary hearing. And this inquest slightly reminds me of what a preliminary hearing is. So after you go through these stages of being arrested and then being charged, you can have an attorney and you can go to something called a preliminary hearing. Now this is only afforded to felonies, this is not afforded to misdemeanors. And what will happen is at this preliminary hearing, it's basically for the judge to decide if the district attorney has brought forth enough evidence based on a standards of preponderance of the evidence, which is very, very low. Like preponderance of the evidence is just like more likely than not this could have happened. It's a very low burden. I think one of the best ways to describe this burden is by my girl Reb Maisel. Uh, she describes preponderance of the evidence. She described it to me when we were DMing. Is that a flat earther can get on the stand? And by preponderance of the evidence, they will be deemed correct that the earth is in fact flat. That's how low the standard is. So that's the burden the district attorney has to meet. They're going to bring forward witnesses and evidence in order to try to prove this burden. And you have the right to a criminal defense attorney at this point. You don't have the right to a criminal defense attorney for a grand jury. You won't even be there for a grand jury, but you'll be there for a preliminary hearing. And. The defense attorney has the ability to cross examine all of the witnesses that the state is bringing forward as well as bring their own witnesses to to discredit the state or try to get the charges reduced by a 17 B or completely get the judge to determine that charges shouldn't be brought in general. Um, then after the prelim is done, the judge is going to decide what charges are going to stick through the charging document, which ones are going to be dismissed and which ones have the potential, if there are something called a wobbler to be 17 bead, which means the felony is reduced down to a misdemeanor. The inquest began on August 9th of 1892 in front of a judge or a magistrate by the name of Josiah Blaisdell. The district attorney's name was Hosea Knowlton, and he brought forward Lizzie Borden, Bridget Sullivan, also known as Maggie Sullivan, and the household guest John Morse, as well as many other witnesses. Now, what was interesting at this time was that the district attorney was allowed to call Lizzie Borden to the stand and question her. Now, we know that in 2024, you will never ever hear of a district attorney calling a defendant to the stand now granted there have been district attorneys that uh, apparently don't really know the law or the constitution that have actually tried to call the defendants to the stand during trial during prelims or have even tried to put forward motions to compel a defendant's statements but it's always denied and a judge. Will almost always scold them for not knowing the law because you have a Fifth Amendment right. And the Fifth Amendment right includes many things, but the main thing that we know it to include is your right against self incrimination. This doesn't just go towards police, right? Where this is where you hear it a lot. You hear the Fifth Amendment, you hear your Miranda rights at a police level, but there's also your Miranda rights with a district attorney, they cannot force you to testify against yourself. They can't force you to turn over evidence. They can't force you to help them prosecute you. The district attorney questioned Lizzie Borden on the stand for over four hours, and during this testimony, Lizzie Borden gave very confusing and very contradictory responses. When she was questioned about what she was doing during the time of her stepmom's murder, Abby Borden, she said that she was reading magazines, but then she gave a different answer saying that she was ironing handkerchiefs. And then during her father's murder, when she was questioned about her father's murder, she first said that she was upstairs on the landing, but then she changed her answer saying that, hey, she actually thought that she was maybe in the kitchen And then she changed her answer to saying that she was actually outside for 20 minutes eating pears. And then she changed her answer again and said that she was actually in the barn looking for fishing supplies. So that was like the main kind of evidence that the district attorney was using during the grand jury in order to convince the jury members, the grand jury members, that Lizzie should be brought to trial off of these murders, and the grand jury agreed. The grand jury did not buy the story that she was burning the dress because it got paint on it, specifically red paint. They believed that she was burning the dress because it had her parents' blood on it. And so they brought forward three counts of murder. They brought forward first-degree murder for Andrew Borden, first-degree murder for Abby Borden, and then they also brought forward one final count of murder for both deaths. Now, this wouldn't happen in today's time because that affects something called double double jeopardy. You can't be tried in the same jurisdiction for the same crime more than once. Double jeopardy is significantly more complicated than that, because double jeopardy not only depends on what charges were brought forward, but it also depends on what jurisdiction you were brought forward for, for those charges. It also depends on what was the nexus of the crime and which had occurred when the charges were brought. Because a district attorney can't, okay, say they charge you for murder for this one set of crime and you're found not guilty, okay, they can't go back and now charge you with manslaughter or assault with GBI from those same set of facts. They had to have brought forward all charges that they wanted to bring forward from that nexus and it also depends on the jurisdiction. Let me give you an example. OJ Simpson was infamously found not guilty for murdering his wife and her boyfriend in the state of California. Okay. He was brought forward for charges at the state level, say at the federal level of California, they wanted to bring murder charges against him. They could because it's not double jeopardy because it's in different jurisdictions. Let me give you another example. Say that I kidnapped somebody in California and I started torturing them and I drove over state lines into Nevada and I continued torturing them there. Say I was brought to trial in California and I was found not guilty. Okay, the state of Nevada can still bring charges against me, even though it comes from the same nexus of crimes because it's in different jurisdictions because I crossed that state line. So now let's get into the motives that the district attorney is bringing forward in order to convince the jury that Lizzie Borden is guilty of three counts of first degree murder. And the first motive is a motive that we know very well for murder, and that is money. So the Borden family was very, very substantially rich. In fact, it was stated that they were one of the seven families that essentially ran the town. But Andrew Borden didn't come from money. He actually came from very rough, poverty, hardworking background. How he became so rich is he made all of his money, like every dollar, from making coffins, which is ironic, I understand. And that's what got him his riches, is that he became a successful businessman in making coffin. But because of his very poor upbringing, he lived a very modest life, and he wasn't very show-off with his money. Instead of living on this place called The Hill in Fall River, Massachusetts, which is where all of the socialites lived, everyone that was somebody lived there. Think of it like Hidden Hills in California. That's where like Drake lives and the Kardashians and the Jenners and all these famous people. That was the equivalent of the hill in Fall River, Massachusetts. And socialites were the equivalent of our influencers and our reality TV stars. But Andrew Borden didn't want to live there he actually built his own home and it was like considered a smaller more modest home now if you see the home just so you know in today's day and age we would not consider it small or modest but that's what they considered back then was a small modest home and he built it on a place that was called second street and second street was just very well known for being a middle class area And it was said at this time, Lizzie Borden, who was 33 years old, was extremely angry at her father for not wanting to live on the hill. She said that because of her father's modest lifestyle, and this is alleged through what other people have been saying, but that it was alleged that Lizzie Borden would say that because of her father's modest lifestyle for them, it made her very isolated from the elite class. And because she was isolated from the elite class, she wasn't able to find a proper suitor to get married. And now, because she was 33 years old, she was commonly referred to as a spinster even in the paper she was referred to as an old spinster, And so now the district attorney is saying that she's now upset because she's been isolated from the elite class because of her father's modest living. And now no man will want to marry her because she's 33 years old, which means she's over the hill, done for, an old hag. So it's said that this was a big, like, contentious relationship between Lizzie and her father for this reason and that Lizzie's father was really tired of hearing her cry and complain about this so he wanted to make her happy in some essence so before they were murdered he sent Lizzie off to Europe to go spend the summer with her cousins right and she had this incredible summer vacation on these yachts on these boats just living the dream with her really wealthy cousins in Europe that lived a wealthy lifestyle and it was said and alleged through gossip which would never be brought into court these days but it was alleged through gossip to the district attorney that Lizzie came back from that trip even angrier because she now started fighting with her father that this is the life that she should be living, this is the life that she deserves to live, and this is the life that they can actually financially afford to live. So the second motive was hatred towards her stepmother. So Abby Borden was Andrew Borden's second wife. So Emma and Lizzie Borden's mom, Andrew's first wife, died when Lizzie was really young. And it was alleged that Andrew only married Abby Borden because he wanted a maid and a cook and somebody to raise his children. And it was claimed that Lizzie and Emma actually heavily looked down upon Abby Borden as basically help. And they believed they were better than her because they only saw her as the help and not a parental figure. Well, it was also alleged that Around 1889, Andrew Borden had actually bought his youngest daughter, who was the blood daughter of Abby and the half sister of Lizzie and Emma, that he had bought her her own house and that this just like infuriated Lizzie and Emma specifically Lizzie, because Lizzie and Emma still had to live at home and their father refused to buy them a home. And so it was claimed that after Andrew had bought the youngest daughter, so Abby's blood daughter, a home in 1889, Lizzie had stopped having meals with Abby and Andrew. So really quick fun fact, or actually really, really sad fact, Lizzie's jury of her peers was 12 white men at this time you could not be a woman or a person of color and sit on a jury in fact women were not illegally allowed to sit on a jury for a significantly long time it wasn't until the civil rights act of 1957 that allowed women the right to serve on federal juries and it wasn't until 1973 that all 50 states even passed similar legislation allowing women to actually sit on juries state and federal. So the trial started on June 5th of 1893 in New Bedford Courthouse before a panel of three judges. Now, today we only have one judge at the state trial level. The prosecution had two district attorneys, District Attorney Knowlton and District Attorney Thomas Moody. The defense was also made up of two juries as well. They were made up of Attorney Andrew Jennings and Attorney George Robinson. So during the district attorney's opening statements, and as we know, opening statements are not supposed to be arguments. They're only supposed to tell you what the evidence is gonna show. But during the opening statements, the district attorney like put on a show. Right. He took Lizzie's blue frock and he threw it on the prosecution table in front of the jury. And the actual skull, the actual physical skull of Andrew Borden and Abby Borden was revealed. And the newspaper said that at the sight of these skulls, Lizzie Borden actually fainted. In fact the newspaper said this and i quote lizzie fell into a faint that lasted for several minutes sending a thrill of excitement through awestruck spectators and causing unfeigned embarrassment and discomfort to penetrate the ranks of counsel so the prosecution's opening statements lasted about two hours and the district attorney said that the only person that could be the murderer is lizzie because she's the only person with not one but two motives And she was also the only person that was in the home at that time, besides the maid, who had the opportunity to kill the parents. And that the maid couldn't be a suspect because, again, if she would have murdered her employer, she would have nowhere to live and no job. The district attorney then showed the head of an axe that he claimed he believed was the murder weapon that Lizzie had used. So now before the trial begins, we want to get into a little bit of the pre-trial motions, also known as motions in lemonade, um, or as I famously was misunderstood for saying motions in lemonade in my TikTok, but it's motions in lemonade. The district attorney wanted to bring forward as evidence testimony from the inquest, right? Remember when he questioned Lizzie for four hours, he wanted to actually read the transcripts like verbatim to the jury. And he wanted that to be evidence showing that Lizzie lies a lot and completely changes her story. The judge ruled that this was inadmissible, saying that it can't be brought forward into trial because that was only for purposes of imprisonment and purposes of arrest and that for any other purposes besides that it would be a violation of her fifth amendment right so the first witness that the district attorney called forward was bridget sullivan also known as maggie sullivan she testified that she was the live-in maid for the bordens and that on the day of the murder lizzie was the only person that she had seen in the home and that lizzie was wearing a blue dress during the morning of the murders Upon cross-examination, Ms. Sullivan revealed that Lizzie and her parents actually had a decent relationship and that a lot of this was just rumors. And that for the past two years, she actually didn't see any contentious relationship between Abby, Andrew, and Lizzie. And she said that Lizzie was very pleasant and that she was always speaking to her stepmother. She further testified that the day before the murders, Abby and Andrew Borden, Lizzie's parents, were actually experiencing pretty severe stomach pains. I'm not 100% sure why this testimony was elicited. I think it's because they're going to try to tie it into what the pharmacist was tes- was is going to testify about about Lizzie trying to get poison the day before. So maybe he's trying to allude to the fact that, hey, Lizzie was trying to get this poison. Maybe she did somehow get the poison and it just didn't work. It just gave them an upset stomach. Bridget Sullivan also testified that Lizzie had told her that at the time of the murders, that she was outside washing windows. It continued on her testimony that, that she herself, Miss Sullivan actually greeted Andrew Borden when he came home from his walk at ten forty in the morning. And then she described hearing Lizzie scream for help a few minutes after Andrew came home. And she testified that this was maybe a couple of minutes after 11 o'clock. The district attorney wants to discredit Miss Sullivan's testimony that the relationship between Abby and Lizzie was Fine and dandy. And they did this by bringing forward a woman by the name of Hannah Gifford. Now, Hannah Gifford was a dressmaker, a seamstress. And she testified that just recently before the murders that she had actually made a garment for Lizzie Borden about a couple of months before the murders. And that when she was talking to Lizzie, Lizzie called her stepmother, and I quote, a mean good for nothing thing. I don't have too much to do with her. I stay in my room most of the time. So the district attorney then called forward Dr. Um, Seabury Bowen to the stand. Now he is the doctor that Lizzie went and brought over to the home. So he testified that on the day of the murders, Lizzie had ran across the street to his house told him what happened asked him to come examine the body he testified that after lizzie had just found her dad murdered she was saying extremely strange things and he said and i quote she would say stuff like oh the contention of her father's troubles with his tenants probably had something to do with the murders He also testified that when he asked Lizzie, where were you when these murders were taking place? Lizzie had told him that she was outside in the barn looking for fishing sinkers or lead sinkers for her fishing trip. Upon cross-examination, Dr. Bowen had testified that he gave Lizzie a sedative before her testimony in front of the judge and that that could be the reason for why all of her answers were extremely different and why they weren't adding up and they weren't making sense, like, during the investigation and during the inquest. Then Adeline Churchill was called to the stand as well, and she testified upon direct examination of exactly what Lizzie was wearing on the day of the murders, and it was the blue dress, right? But then upon cross-examination, she testified that, yeah, she remembers seeing Lizzie wearing the blue dress, but she doesn't actually remember seeing any blood on the dress. Next, the district attorney brought forward a man by the name of John Fleet. He was one of the assistant marshals for Fall River, Massachusetts. And he testified that he was one of the investigators, one of the police officers, one of the marshals, whatever you want to call them, that was at the Bordens' home investigating this murder. And that he was the one that was actually trying to take Lizzie's statements when he was questioning her about the death of her parents. So he testifies that he asked Lizzie, hey, who do you think could have killed your parents? And that he said her response was jarring and then after he said who do you think would have killed your parents her response was she's not my mother sir she was my stepmother my mother died when i was a child he went on to testify that what caught him really off guard was that she did not care to answer the question she did not care to find out who could have murdered her parents. She didn't care to make a list of people that maybe her parents had issues with. And that also during his time as, you know, a detective, a marshal, he has not known anybody to have given such a callous response and such a vindictive response. And he also was testifying about the different terms of was not an it? And he testified that most people are in shock after they just find their parents murdered, let alone their heads axed off. And because of that shock, it actually takes a while to process that your loved one is dead. And so a lot of times during his investigations, people use the present terms instead of the past terms. But Lizzie, without hesitation, was using the term was instead of is. So the next person that the district attorney called to the stand was a woman by the name of Alice Russell. Alice Russell testified that she was a long-term friend of Lizzie and Emma Borden's. And that a couple of days later after the murder, she was staying at their home and that she went down to the kitchen in the middle of the night and she actually saw Lizzie burning the blue dress that she had originally saw Lizzie wearing the morning of the murders. And she testified that Again, the same thing that she testified during the grand jury proceedings. She asked her, why are you burning that dress? And that Lizzie said she had got red paint on it. She also continued testifying, saying that she was also with Lizzie the night before her parents were murdered, that Lizzie had come over to her home and that they were basically hanging out in Alice's bedroom and that Lizzie told her that she would be going on vacation soon. And when Alice asked her, like, well, where are you going on vacation and why are you going on vacation? She testifies that Lizzie responded with saying that she feels afraid that something is going to happen and that she feels as if something is hanging over her. She just doesn't know what. So Miss Russell continued her testimony by saying that that same night that Lizzie was talking about how she had to go on a vacation because she felt like something bad was going to happen, she was also telling Alice that she felt very afraid and she felt like she always had to sleep with one eye open because she felt like something was either going to burn down her home or she felt like somebody was going to hurt her father. And she said that the reason why she felt like somebody was going to burn down her home or hurt her father was because he was so rude to people. And in fact, the exact phrase was that he was so discourteous to people. So basically he was very contentious towards Other people, very rude, not very polite, not a lot of people like this man. And the reason why this testimony was so unbelievably compelling is because the district attorney here is proving or trying to prove, trying to elude in the minds of the jury that Lizzie had planned this murder out, right? She had went to a druggist. She had tried to buy deadly poison. she couldn't get it or she did give it and it only gave her parents an upset stomach and it didn't work out. They didn't die. So then she goes over to her friend's house and she's basically trying to start an alibi. They think that she is trying to start an alibi the day before by telling her, Hey, I think someone's going to murder my father. It has been really bad at home. People just absolutely hate him. He's so volatile and so rude. I think someone's either going to murder him or burn down the house. And so I have to get out of here for my safety. And they were also trying to tie this testimony into the doctor's testimony. Remember the doctor was testifying that when he was trying to examine the body, Lizzie was telling him that this was her father's own doing. It was because he had terrible business relationships with people. People just really did not like him. And that it was probably an angry tenant that had murdered her father trying to have the jury put together all of these testimonies of Allie was trying to, sorry, not Allie, Lizzie was trying to put together this alibi the night before about how all these people were angry. And then she's now trying to get the doctor on board to believe that as well. And when the district attorney was asking Alice about the burning of the dress, she said that when she saw Lizzie down in the kitchen, Burning the blue dress that she was wearing the day of the murders. That when Alice asked her why, her exact phrase was, "I'm going to burn this old thing up. It is just covered with paint." Upon cross examination, the defense attorneys were basically questioning Alice about exactly where was Lizzie burning this dress, and she was saying it was in the kitchen. She was burning the dress in the kitchen. They were asking her, "Is the kitchen closed off?" She said, no, the kitchen is open. They were saying, are there doors that she locked to try to hide herself into the kitchen? She also said, no, no doors were locked. Like, the kitchen was very accessible. And so, basically, the defense continued alluding. He was like, okay, well, if you think this was the murder weapon, you're saying that she... Or, not the murder weapon, but you think that this was a piece of evidence to allude that Lizzie's the murderer. And you're saying that she was just trying to get rid of this evidence in the open and Alice was like well I'm not saying she was trying to get rid of evidence I'm just saying she was burning the dress and yes it was in the open so the defense is just trying to allude to the jury hey if you're trying to get rid of the only evidence that can tie you to a murder you're probably not going to do it in the open where there's a bunch of people living in your home that can see what you're doing so next the district attorney brings forward Eli Benz, and Eli Benz. Was at the time, as we know, he was called a druggist, but in modern times, he'd be called a pharmacist. And he was there to testify about how the day before, like we know because he testified about this previously in a different proceeding about how the day before Lizzie had come to buy deadly poison, but that he would not give it to her because she didn't have a doctor's prescription to buy the deadly poison. But once Eli got up there and started testifying about where he works, what he does, and that Lizzie had been to him the day prior, the defense objected and they kind of had this evidentiary hearing outside of the presence of the jury where the defense was arguing that this evidence should not come in now the district attorney's argument was saying hey this needs to come in because this is proving that lizzie was trying to kill was actively trying to kill her parents that she was trying to get this deadly poison the night before to murder her parents she wasn't able to obtain it so she murdered them with an axe the judge ruled no that the evidence is not going to come in because it's too far removed because lizzie's parents were murdered with an axe and they weren't murdered with poison therefore it was irrelevant And obviously, this evidentiary hearing was argued outside of the presence of the jury because juries are not allowed to hear anything unless the judge deems it admissible to be heard. So in almost every single trial that has ever happened and that will ever happen, juries are never going to hear all the evidence that maybe you and I will learn about as lay people. They're only going to hear a portion of it that the judge is going to allow in. So after the druggist or the pharmacist was excused, the district attorney rested and he believed that he was done, that he had brought forward enough evidence to convict a first degree murder. And Now it is the defense's turn to put on a case, if they decide to put on a case, and The defense actually made most of their case through cross-examining the state's witnesses, and this isn't uncommon. Most of the time, most defense attorneys make a good portion of their case, usually not all of it, but it can happen, but they make a good portion of their case through the witnesses that the district attorney brings forward. So it's a huge art to take someone's witness and flip it around and basically make it your own witness. If you can do this, it gives you a lot of credibility and it really hurts opposing counsel because that person was supposed to bolster someone else's stance, but now they're bolstering yours, right? And then also you need to remember that a defense attorney... I'm going to say this loosely because I don't actually believe it, but a defense attorney's job isn't to prove anything. It's only to create reasonable doubt. Now, the reason why I say I don't believe that is because if you actually practice law, most of the time, almost every time, the jury is going in there wanting the defense to prove innocence, and they're already going in there believing that the defendant is guilty. But a lot of times, if you can Prove reasonable doubt. If you can kind of put evidence forward saying and make the jury believe, like, hey, this is a real fucking possibility that could have happened, and I don't know which one to pick, they're gonna go with the defense. So the defense's tactic here was pretty much to hammer away at the district attorney's witnesses every time they were there. They were making them sound contradictory. They were contradicting every single piece of evidence that the state was bringing forward. The state brought forward a witness that said no the relationship between lizzie and her parents were fine and this was the maid that lived with them and then the next witness was saying no i made her address and it was contentious and so every chance that the defense got they contradicted the state's own witnesses through the witnesses in fact they did such a great job at this that the newspaper actually wrote and i quote Attorney Robinson, the defense attorney and ex-governor, has done such a great job at cross-examination that it is certainly without equal in New York City as a cross-examiner ready to turn more or less to his own account nearly every government witness." For example, when continuing on about how well they cross-examine, one of the police officers that was coming forward and talking about, remember the hatchet, the boxes that they were testifying that they found? And that there was one hatchet in there that was covered in ash, and they believe that it was covered in ash to dry off after being washed because it was a murder weapon. The defense asked, well, where is the handle that allegedly broke off? And they had no answer for it. They said, we can't find the handle. They were saying, okay, so you found the head part with no blood on it. And they said, yeah, there was no blood on it. And they're like, okay. And it wasn't wet when you found it. And they said, no, it wasn't wet. So they're like, okay, so you just think it could have been wet. And they said, yeah, well, ash dries things. So that's what we think the ash was used for. And he's like, okay, so you found half of it, but you couldn't find the other half. And they said, yes. And he was okay, well, why would they only hide half of it? Why wouldn't they hide both of it? And they also didn't have an answer to that. The defense also was exploiting the timeline as well. Cause remember this timeline is really short. And this is actually an issue that district attorneys get themselves in a lot because district attorneys need to put together these timelines, right? And the issue with it is that if you put together this timeline and you say this, it must have happened during this time. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's super easy to poke at it. So keep in mind, the district attorney has literally only given a timeline between eight to 13 minutes after Andrew Borden was murdered and Lizzie Borden started calling out for Bridget or Maggie Sullivan, the maid. The defense was expressing how difficult it was through this timeline for not only Lizzie to have just axed to death, and an ax is not light work, and to swing it that many times at someone's face is also not light work, that for her to have axed her father to death, washed off all of the blood off of her, Off of her person, off of her clothes, and then hid the murder weapon within eight to 13 minutes that it was too short of a timeline to have actually done all of that. The defense did bring forward a few of their own witnesses. They brought forward a man by the name of Charles Gifford and another man by the name of Uria Kirby. And both of them testified that on the night before the Bordens were murdered at around 11 p.m., they saw a really strange man that was kind of lingering outside of the Borden household. Then the defense tried to point to a new suspect and they called a man by the name of dr benjamin hanfy and he testified that the day of the murders at around 10:30 in the morning which is what the state believes is about 10 minutes before andrew borden came home they testified that they had saw or he had saw a young pale-faced man on the sidewalk near the borden's home Now, I don't know how this makes him a suspect because he was on the sidewalk near the house and he was pale faced, but this is like a person that they were trying to elude could have been the same person that was hanging around the house at 11 o'clock at night and that he's kind of stalking the Borden household. The defense also brought forward two very vital witnesses. One was a plumber and the other was a gas fitter. So remember the district attorney, Had the police come to the stand and the police said that when they went to go check the barn, which was one of the many areas that Lizzie said that she was at during these murders and that she was looking for these lead sinkers to go fishing. And the police said that they ruled that that was impossible because there was a total layer of dust on the floor of the barn and it was undisturbed and there was no footprints well this plumber and this gas fitter actually contradicted that and they said that they were actually hired by the Borden family and that they had actually come to the family two days before the murder and they were actually in the barn because where they had to work on where the issues were was located in the barn and so they were bringing this evidence forward saying the Dust would have been disturbed because if there was a layer of dust on the floor, well, this gas fitter and this plumber had both been walking around, you would have seen footprints. But the police are saying that it was just one layer of dust with no disturbance. Emma Borden, who is Lizzie's full biological sister was also called to the stand, and she was saying that Lizzie actually had a great relationship with both of her parents. She said that Lizzie's relationship with her stepmom was more so cordial. And then that was i guess the historians considered the more appropriate relationship or great kind of relationship to have with a step-parent is to have like a cordial relationship so not friendly not parental but just cordial but that her and her father were actually really close and that lizzie bought him this gold ring like 10 years ago as a gift and he has worn it almost every single day since for the past decade and that he wore it so much because he prized it so much because Lizzie had given it to him. The defense tried to bring forward a witness by the name of Emma that would have been a really great witness, in my opinion. But the district attorney object, and again, the jury was excused from the courtroom, and the judge ruled that what Emma was going to testify to, what she was going to testify to was that it was actually very common practice for the Borden women to burn dresses that they did not want anymore. But the judge didn't allow this testimony in for the jury to hear because he said it couldn't be proven. And then the defense's main and final argument and the argument that they put the most time into was that Lizzie Borden was a woman. And that not only was she a woman, she was a Christian woman and that committing murder was unladylike and therefore she could have never done it because a good Christian woman would never commit murder. So during closing arguments, again, you are arguing the evidence that you have brought forward. Now is your time to not just present the evidence, but argue the evidence. And the district attorney did a decently good job at this. They brought forward all of the evidence about how people are saying the relationship between the stepmom and Lizzie is very contentious. And on top of that, the relationship between Lizzie and her father is also contentious based upon money right? That Lizzie's upset because she doesn't live on the hill. She's a old over the hill, dead sphinxer because she's 33 years old and she can't be with a suitor because her dad won't let her meet the elite people because of their modest lifestyle. Um, he continues on basically saying that Lizzie was trying to concoct this alibi 24 hours before the murder. And this was on the keels of her just getting back from Europe, which had like, enraged her anger towards her stepmom and her dad about their living lifestyles because she wanted to live the life that she had just experienced over the summer in Europe. And so she's now concocting this alibi. She is saying that her father has these terrible relationships with people and that people are threatening this house. She believes it's going to be burned down or her father is going to be murdered, Right and that she was the only person that was in the home. That the maid did not see anyone else in the home, that no one had broken into the home. She saw nobody but Lizzie that day. And that Lizzie was the only person with opportunity and motive. They brought up all of Lizzie's lies on how she couldn't keep her story straight and basically said there is nobody else that could have done this except Lizzie. And that every turn of Lizzie trying to make an alibi it's been rejected, such as not having footprints in the barn that they're alleging, or the fact that she said she was cleaning windows at the time of the murder, but actually the maid was cleaning, and the maid didn't see Lizzie cleaning at all at the time, and that Lizzie was not in the kitchen reading a magazine or eating breakfast because the maid would have saw her because she was cleaning, all of this, this is what they have argued. So they said there was no one else with opportunity and motive besides Lizzie. Now, the defense gave their closing arguments, and defense attorney Jennings argued that, and I quote, "...there is not one single particle of direct evidence in this case from beginning to end against Lizzie. There is not a spot of blood. There is not a weapon that they have connected with her in any way, shape, or fashion." Then the other defense attorney, attorney Robinson, got up and said that There is absolutely no way that a woman is capable of committing murder, that women are not strong enough to commit murder, they're not intelligent enough to commit murder, and that it is too unladylike uh, for women to kill, and that the only person that could have committed these murders is either a maniac or the devil himself, but that a good Christian woman cannot commit murder and Lizzie Borden is a good Christian woman. And they continue on saying that the state didn't meet their burden beyond a reasonable doubt that Lizzie had committed these murders and that it was physically impossible for lizzie or any woman to commit murder without the help of a confederate especially when you take in the timeline that the district attorney had come up with those 8 to 13 minutes that if lizzie did commit these murders she couldn't have done them by herself because the timeline is too short she would have needed a second set of manly hands to have carried the weight of this. So after the defense and the people rest on their closing arguments, right? The people give the first set of closing arguments, The defense gives their closing arguments and then the people get up one more time to give something called a rebuttal to try to undo everything that the defense just argued. After that, the defense doesn't get to go up again after a rebuttal. The only reason why the state gets to do it twice is because they have the burden to prove all of the elements, right? So after this is done, the judge will give something called jury instructions, which is the law. (laughs) And this usually happens after a jury instruction conference is held where the attorneys outside of the presence of the jury will argue for freaking ever about all the laws that need to come in to be read to the jury. So when a judge is giving the jury instructions and reading the jury instructions one by one to the 12 jury members, they're not allowed to give their viewpoint or their opinion at all they can't say a single they can't even answer a question if you have a question they could literally just read to you the jury instruction but that actually didn't happen in this case the judge fully stated his opinion in fact it was stated that the judge pretty much re-argued what the defense attorneys just argued. The judge argued that it was impossible for a woman to commit murder, especially a good Christian woman. And good Christian women are ladylike and ladylike women don't commit murder. And that Lizzie Borden was a pristine Christian woman and she did not have the intelligence or the physical capabilities to carry out Two acts of homicide, and that because she is a good Christian woman, she is entitled to every inference in her favor. In fact, the judge argued so hard in favor of Lizzie Borden that the paper wrote the judge had been the senior counsel for the defense, making the closing plea in behalf of the defendant he could not have more absolutely pointed out the folly of depending upon circumstantial evidence alone. So the jury deliberated for about an hour and a half for these three counts of murder and they came back with a verdict of not guilty. After the verdict was read out, the paper wrote that Lizzie actually like, let out a yell of relief and sank into her sister's arms her sister was sitting right next to her i guess during this entire trial and that after she fell and sank into her sister's arms she said in a quote now take me home i want to go to the old place and at once and super fun fact about this case as well the first purchase that lizzie made after she had returned home and inherited all of her father's money was a mansion that was located on the hill which was the place that she was so angry at for her father not moving them there so she could meet a rich suitor And with that, the tale of Lizzie Borden is coming to an end. If there are any ghost hunters out there, let me know in the comments if there has been any paranormal activity that has been related to this case that anyone has concretely found. But if not, I hope you all learned something. And with that, the defense rests.